I'd invite you to turn now in your Bibles to uh, principally the passage is going to be 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 16 to 21. But I'm going to read um, the first verse of Mark chapter 9 uh, because of the connection between the two and just as a reminder of uh, where we were uh, before uh, Julie and I left for Sangha to Crystal a few weeks ago. So beginning Mark chapter 9, verse 1, we read, And he said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it's come with power. And that is a preface to what happens then a week later in terms of the transfiguration. And when you actually study Matthew, Mark, and Luke, when you look at their reading and the statements and the wording, uh, the best fulfillment of what Mark says right here is, in fact, the transfiguration. A lot of scholars will say, no, it's something else. It's the 70 A.D. events on Jerusalem, or some will say, no, it's the final second coming. Uh, but when you actually look at the Greek and look at the language of the three different passages, and you recognize that what is interchangeable is this statement, after it has come with power, all three of them, exactly the same thing. And when you start analyzing what that means, and then you see what Peter says in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 16 through 21, the only reasonable conclusion is, is that the gospel writers understood, whatever scholars may think, the gospel writers understood that the transfiguration was, in fact, the fulfillment of these words that Jesus said on this particular day. So we're talking here about the transfiguration that's to come. And so we turn to 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 16 to 21, because this is Peter's theological interpretation slash application, which is to say this is not necessarily the only application, but this is a very powerful application of what Peter experienced in terms of the transfiguration. So here's what Peter says. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse again, beginning at verse 16. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we were no, made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased, we ourselves heard this very voice, born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Father, grant us uh, your spirit, the same spirit who inspired infallibly uh, the prophets of old, the apostles of the New Testament, the writing of the scriptures. We pray for his current ministry with us, a ministry of illumination, a ministry of working with our minds and our sanctification, 
that we might understand what the Word has to say. We pray for that illuminating work that would guide us and which would direct us and which further would motivate us toward obedience, application, the right use of your Word in our own lives. We pray for that. We want, ultimately, the goal of our lives to be this, that we would bring you much glory by bearing much fruit, demonstrating to all men in our generation that we are, in fact, truly disciples of Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. Now, this morning I want to begin with um, something that was written back in um, 25 years ago, 1992. It was a Supreme Court decision. Uh, these are the words of uh, Justice Anthony Kennedy. Pay very close attention to what he said. This was uh, a 5-4 decision with respect to an abortion decision, which basically said abortion's okay all the way from conception to just about birth. So this was sort of the final uh, uh, women's reproductive rights statement said 25 years ago. But listen to what he said in defense of that decision. At the heart of liberty is the right to define one's own concept of existence, of meaning, of the universe, and of the mystery of human life. I'm going to say it again. I want you to think, listen very carefully to the powerfulness of what he's expressing here. At the very heart of liberty... Of course, those words excite every American because we're all about liberty. Is the right, and we're all about rights, to define one's own concept of existence, of meaning, of the universe, and of the mystery of human life. So let's expound on this just a little bit. What Justice Kennedy is saying is that liberty, the very heart of liberty, means that all of us have the right to define our own worldview, to define our own map of reality, to establish our own moral compass. Reality is what you claim it to be for yourself. If it is true for you, then it's true. Now, when we adopt this perspective as we have over the past 25 years, and we begin to put it into our culture and into our laws, well, what do we get? Well, 2015, we get marriage redefined. And in the last five or six years, we have suddenly unloaded upon society a bewildering array of genders chosen and invented by folks defining their own concept of reality and the meaning of, of existence and the meaning of the universe. All of this is happening in part because science has given us a very incredible way of living very comfortably in the world, but science has failed to give us the ability to tell us the meaning and significance of the lives we live. Now, let me put that in a bit of historical context. Back up a little bit, put this in perspective. In Western culture, around the 1600s, philosophy took over for God and religion in terms of explaining the world. Uh, philosophy reigned for about two centuries. Uh, then in the 1800s, 
science began to take over what philosophy had dominated for over 200 years. And science began to tell us everything about the world. Science was attempting to explain the whole meaning of life and what everything is all about. But science didn't satisfy. What science had to say about the world didn't ultimately pull everything together. Which is why Justice Kennedy has said what he has said. See, if God and religion do not explain everything, if philosophical systems don't explain everything, if, if a scientific understanding doesn't explain everything, what do you have left? If none of those things explain everything, the only place left to go to is, in fact, the individual self. If you don't think God is there to speak into the riddle of life, if you don't think philosophy solves the riddle of existence, if science hasn't been able to pull all the pieces together, then it's not just the essence of liberty to allow each person to create his own understanding of reality and moral compass. There's really no other choice. If you reject God, philosophy, and science to give you truth about the universe with any kind of authoritative guide, if it's not going to help you to turn to any of these three former authorities then it winds up being every person for himself or herself or themselves or whatever gender-fluid pronoun you use today. Now, I, I, I say these things because there's never been in the last 400 years a greater time of opportunity for the gospel. The reason for this is that the premise that every person has the liberty and right to define for himself reality, existence, the meaning of the universe, his own moral compass, is so incredibly unworkable and destructive. Let me give you an example. If you're a postmodern and you buy your first house and you move into this nice neighborhood and you begin to have your children and next door somebody moves in who has just the same postmodern attitude about everything, but he has a big dog and he doesn't keep the dog where the dog's supposed to be and the dog does his business in your yard. And then he has kids who decide that because they have their own moral compass want to play their music at all hours of the night and it's totally disturbing you, keeping your baby awake, disrupting your life and you step next door and you say to this you think is going to be a reasonable, postmodern, tolerant person just like you and you say, do you not understand that your dog and your music and what you do is absolutely disrupting my life. Now, what we call there is, in fact, moral conflict. And if this person is an astute neighbor holding to a postmodern viewpoint, he's just simply going to say, you need to go home and define your reality differently so that it's not noise and dogs that are bothering you. 
the truth of the matter is, when you have this kind of conflict taking place between people who hold this postmodernism and this postmodernism, and they are not identical, you have conflict. And postmodernism can never solve moral conflict because it doesn't have truth. And so the first rather pacifistic postmodern is left to doing what? Calling the police and hoping that what can't be solved morally will be solved by the brute force of power. The government will make you stop doing what you're doing, if you're fortunate. (laughs) The truth of the matter is, we are in the most dangerous era ever in history in Western culture, because when you have no moral fabric and no moral truth, the only final absolute is absolute government power. The government steps in and does what it wants to do in order to protect society. And people do not like that because the so-called liberty that Justice Kennedy is going to give you to define your reality and your life however you want to is going to be stopped by the government as soon as your exercise of your liberty has a collision course with the stability of society that the government desires, whatever that may be. Now, this is a great time for the gospel. Because as people begin to understand that the kind of position they're holding to is not a position that can ever, ever satisfy in terms of life. And they have realized that science has burned itself out on being able to help us. And philosophy has, for 2,500 years, failed to give us what it should give us. When we can present a robust form, which is biblical, of true gospel Christianity. We have something to say that's going to have credence within the culture in which we live. And it doesn't start by being obnoxious to anyone. It doesn't start by by, uh, refuting people. It really begins with simply speaking to people and saying, life is hard when there is no anchor for truth, isn't it? Life is difficult when you can't prove that the position you think is right is right because it's only right for you. Now, this passage speaks to this this morning. Uh, It it actually connects quite well with the culture and what we're dealing with today. The Christian faith will look at Western culture and see everything that's happened, see people turning away from God people turning away from the Bible, people turning away from the gospel to find an alternative in philosophy, to find an alternative in science, to find an alternative in this this great excess of individual liberty and recognize that all of those things will burn themselves out. They can never finish. They can never be whatever you would want them to be. The Christian message is going to continue to make the claim that all of these things that Christian all of these things that, that the right to liberty that Kennedy, Justice Kennedy would claim, all of those things have actually been at the heart of the gospel. Not us, we ourselves defining these things, but God speaking into this world. God telling us the true meaning of our existence. God telling us what life is all about. God telling us about the mysteries of life. Truth anchored in a God who has spoken, a God who's come in 
to this world. Now, the Apostle Peter is, is really speaking to this. He tells us that God the Father has spoken. He tells us that God the Son has come. And this incredible anchor of truth is given to us in the scriptures that God has inspired. Now, the main thing I want us to appreciate in, in light of what our culture is today is simply this. We're Christians. We have the anchor of God's truth. We have the guidance of God's truth. But it's not only for us to live by, but it is for us to be able to provide help and guidance for those whose truth compass is only as large as their own small little heart. We live in a day in which we can say to those who are postmoderns, you believe that the word truth applies not with a big capital T, but only with seven billion little t's. What goes on in everybody's heart, that's what's true. But no great big truth to wrap everything together. And you see what a mess the world is and what a mess the world is going to continue to be. But what if, what if there is a capital T that combines everything together? What if there is a God who's spoken? What if there is a God who's revealed himself? What if there is a God who has cared about us so that we can actually anchor our lives into his truth? Wouldn't that be something that would bring to all of us a tremendous amount of help, not only for time, but ultimately for eternity. Now, let's get into the passage here and see how what, what Peter says speaks to these kinds of things. Uh, three points, easy to remember. Accusation, answer, application. All right? Accusation, answer, application. Uh, Peter's going to address an accusation made against the Christian faith. And then he's going to present the answer to that accusation. And then he's immediately going to move to the application of what his answer happens to be. The accusation is, is found in verse 16. It's really a, a charge of fabrication, and Peter alludes to this. Uh, he says, you know, we did not follow cleverly devised myths. We didn't follow uh, other translations, uh, tales, fables, invented stories. Apparently, uh, there was constantly in the New Testament world, uh, not by everyone, but by certain quarters of people, opponents of the Christian faith, who are saying, look, everything you're saying about Jesus as the Son of God and his miracles and the resurrection and all this, all of that is a fabrication. It's all make-believe. It's all just something that you have invented uh, in, a, in a manner that you're trying to persuade people, even con people, and so forth. It's likely the case that when, when the apostles were preaching, there were certain ones in the audience who would raise that kind of objection claiming that the stories were false. Now, I want us to appreciate how um, Peter did not respond to this statement, because this is important. Um, suppose Peter had responded the way that I'm going to describe it, but he didn't respond this way at all. So this is in contrast. So Suppose Peter had said something like this. Hey, 
You who think we've done cleverly invented tales and we're conning people of all this stuff. No. I serve a risen Savior. He is in the world today. I know that he's living whatever men may say. You ask me how I know he lives? He lives right here within my heart. Now I want to say, we need to thank God Peter did not respond that way. Now, the importance for why he didn't respond this way is this. In the first place, in the ancient world, that would have impressed nobody. The ancient world was not postmodern. The only people who might have been impressed by that were the solipsisms, the, sol- the sophists and the solipsists. Those who would say something like this, you can't, pr- you can't prove that the world wasn't created five minutes ago. Those kind of philosophers. Uh, they were few, they were rare, and they didn't really get a lot of converts. Most everyone out there was, was basically like from Missouri. Show me. If you're making this claim, show me. So if, if Peter had said, right here, that's how I know, he lives within my heart. It would have impressed nobody. But in our context, the reason why we can be so glad that Peter did not describe his Christian conviction that way is because that's exactly the kind of response a postmodern culture would embrace and love. We are so glad that's the kind of claim that you are making. Uh, Because all of us can validate our view of reality by what goes on inside of our heart. and, and they would basically, you're just like us. Wow. Yeah. If the truth and truth and reality of Jesus is because he lives within your heart, that's great. That's wonderful. That's exactly the way we see things too. Our truth, our reality is vested in our hearts. Jesus lives in your heart. It must be true for you. He doesn't live in my heart. It's not true for me. The the importance of this, first of all, your experience as a Christian is absolutely vital. But your experience as a Christian proves nothing about anyone but you. Your experience as a Christian does not prove that God is in Christ reconciling the world to himself. The gospel is not what goes on inside of you. The gospel is what God has done outside of us in space and time and history. The good news is not that Jesus lives in your heart. The good news is what God has done in Christ 2,000 years ago that has a span of effects from time to eternity. The gospel is outside of you. Its effects, its power works in you. But what happens in you is not the gospel. And if you think it is the gospel, then you're postmodern in your understanding of your Christian experience. If all you can talk about is what God has done in you, You just have an interesting conversation perspective. It's totally autobiographical. But what is totally autobiographical about you is not God's biography in Christ. 
We've got to appreciate this. We've got to see this. Because our rising generation is, in fact, postmodern to the core. One of the most instructive things for me teaching in a Christian high school for 13 years was the realization that all of these Bakersfield Christian High School students, almost all of them, are postmodern in their Christian faith. When I would say something like this, this is God's standard. You shall not commit adultery. And they would say something like this, but if someone's not an atheist, that law If someone is an atheist and doesn't believe in God, God's law can't apply to them. So you're telling me that as a Christian, because you believe in God, his laws apply to you. But if someone isn't a Christian, like an atheist, then none of these moral rules ever apply to them. Well, how can they? They don't believe in it. So what makes it real is if they believe in it. How does that work for the law of gravity? They can't wrap it around in their minds. They can't, they can't understand the fact that, that if, if, it's, if they don't hold their worldview the same as yours, they really think God doesn't exist if you're an atheist. That's postmodernism to the core. It's very, very deep. Moving on then to how does Peter then answer this accusation? I've anticipated this a little bit. His answer is is wrapped up in the last part of verse 16 and then 17 and 18. And essentially what what Peter is going to say is that the message about Jesus Christ isn't make-believe. Rather, it's a true, uh, real-world, historical thing that's happened. That the truth about the message of the gospel is a truth that's grounded in time and space and history. Outside of Peter. Now, notice this first of all. Um, if you were to read just Second Peter 1, verses 16 through 21, and you had never read the gospel accounts of the transfiguration, there would be probably a hundred details that you wouldn't get and that you would miss. You wouldn't understand what Jesus had said beforehand. There are some standing here who shall not see death before they see the kingdom of God come with power. You wouldn't have that. Uh, You wouldn't have an understanding that with Peter, uh, there was James and John. You wouldn't have that understanding. Uh, You wouldn't understand what it means when, when Peter says, when he received honor and glory from the majesty on high, you wouldn't understand that that's speaking about the transfiguration when Jesus is totally transfigured, totally changed, and he becomes exceedingly glorified at that. You wouldn't understand that. Nor would you catch the fact that when this voice speaks from heaven, what Peter records in 1 Peter isn't everything that, that, that God the Father said on that occasion which is to say there's so many pieces missing to the story as Peter records it 
that it actually fails to be a good reference point for Peter unless his audience already knew the story in its fullness. That's what I'm trying to say to you. What Peter does here in invoking a story to support his argument, to be the ground of his argument, requires that his audience know the story inside and out. Does that make sense to you? If I made any reference to the uh, Mayweather and uh, McGregor fight last night, and if you do not follow mixed martial arts, if you do not follow boxing, you'd have no clue what I'm talking about. And some of you will still have no clue when I finish with that story at the end of the message today. All right? So, so we have to assume that there's a context here for what Peter is saying. And the context is they understand the transfiguration story. They know all the details. They know the fullness of what, what, what God the Father said on that particular occasion. This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to Him. Peter doesn't record all of that in Second Peter. But that's the fullness of what God the Father said on that occasion. Now, that's important for us to get. Peter is relying upon this very important, well-known story. Now, in using that story, the central purpose, the central logic of the story is this. Look, the story about Jesus isn't make-believe. The story about Jesus is grounded in things which we ourselves witnessed firsthand. We were eyewitnesses of these things. And that's critical. Anytime the Christian faith is based upon our internal experience as opposed to things that we can bear witness to outside of us, objective, we're slipping back into a postmodern perspective. So this is what's going on here. Peter is saying... Look, these are not cleverly crafted tales. This is something that truly happened. We didn't make this up because we were actually there. We didn't have some burning in our hearts. We weren't some first century Mormons. We were, in fact, those who experienced outside of us that which God himself did. Now, the interesting thing about their hearts if the audience was even thinking about Peter's heart, they would have said, Peter saw all this. And what was going on in his heart was absolute terror. Because that's what the passage tells us about the transfiguration. Peter and James and John were terrified. And that's why Peter didn't have a clue as to what he was saying when he talked about building tabernacles and tents for Moses and Elijah and Jesus. Now Peter goes on to say, in verse 17 and 18, not only were they eyewitnesses, but they were earwitnesses. They heard the voice of God from heaven saying, This is my Son, my Beloved, with whom I am well pleased. In other words, the message isn't fabricated. The message isn't grounded in religious experiences. It's grounded in eyewitness and earwitness accounts these men had when they were on the mountain with Christ. They saw Jesus speaking from heaven, authenticating who Jesus was. This is my son. Now, what Peter is saying then is this. He and the fellow apostles, 
They had the most direct experience of God that you can possibly imagine. It's almost like the experience of Moses. And that's how it's described in the Gospels. A holy mountain on which God speaks directly to them. So, Peter's reminding his audience the message is a message grounded in eyewitness historical testimony. It's a witness about God's own Son becoming incarnate and living in this world. It's about God the Father's own voice concerning His Son who was in the world. We were there. We saw the glorification of Jesus. We heard the voice from heaven. This is how people are made right with God. This message, fully credentialed by God Himself. Our faith is anchored in the reality of those things which truly took place. Now, what is Peter's application of this? He moves immediately, verses uh, 19-21, and he says, first of all, we have here a greater confirmation He says, we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed. Now, what does he mean by that? Well, think about it for a moment. When Jesus came, every aspect of his life was in fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. Christ himself was the confirmation of the truth of the prophetic word that had been given for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. And furthermore, Jesus made it clear to his apostles Uh, when he explained to them from the beginning of the Word of God all the way to the end, from, from Genesis to Malachi, all the passages which spoke about him. So they had already had the Word of God, the prophetic Word of God, so wonderfully confirmed in terms of Christ's own fulfilling of these things and then Christ telling them that he had fulfilled all these things and showed him how all of this had taken place. And then Peter says, Because of what happened to us on the mountain, we have the prophetic word even more fully confirmed. Because not only did we have the life of Jesus, not only did we have the teachings of Jesus, but we had God's own voice from heaven telling us, Jesus is everything. Jesus is my beloved son. Listen to him. You might look at it this way. Layer upon layer upon layer of confirmation. So then his application is this. He says, because all of this is so, you would do well to pay attention to to the scriptures as a lamp shining in a dark place. What other proper application is there to the Word of God but to pay attention to all and everything which the Word of God has said? The the word lamp there reminds us immediately of Psalm 119, 105, 
Your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. And Peter says it's a lamp shining in a dark place because this world is the dark place of fallen human nature, of the God of this world blinding the minds of unbelievers so they cannot see the, the light of the gospel of the glory of, of God in the face of Christ. It's, it's a dark world where everyone thinks he is his own light and lamp and therefore we, paying close attention to this word, have this lamp in a day that's terribly, terribly dark. Because a Supreme Court justice captured the essence of postmodern thinking that it's the right of every person to define for himself the meaning of the universe and existence and the mysteries of life. So, the fight last night. Most of you probably have no idea that one of the epic fights of all time was occurring last night in Las Vegas. Uh, I felt it was my responsibility to watch it so that I could convey anything of spiritual importance to all of you. And I sat there thinking, 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 how does this relate? And then I realized it relates in every way. Probably 50 times during the four hours of, of four bouts that I watched, because it says it was starting at 6 and the big fight didn't start till 9. 50 times at least, the announcers are describing Las Vegas by its euphemism. It's not a nice euphemism, by its infamous uh, alternative name, Sin City. Sin City, Sin City. Again and again and again. And I thought, how, how ironic that the people who are promoting this incredibly epic event recognize that the city they're having it in is the antithesis of what is good and right in the sight of God. Uh, the, the two fighters, uh, two men of, of, of epic proportions in terms of what they've been able to achieve in this world, a mixed martial arts guy, Ewan McGregor, an Irishman, who five years ago was living in abject poverty and uh, welfare in Ireland who had taken himself from that to the, to the top of the world in mixed martial arts, which is a brutal, brutal non-sport. It's a brutal, brutal thing. And at the top of, the, of all of that, he's made millions and millions and millions of dollars. This fight minimally was going to earn him $30 million, the estimates to $100 million. Now, the other fighter has had one of those traditional uh, uh, fights careers. It was fascinating to hear the, the braggadocio Ewan McGregor Irishman, who's always, always, always telling he's going to beat everybody and telling them when. With Floyd Mayweather, who, in the midst of all of this fame and money that he has made, 49 undefeated fights, has a biographical vignette that highlights his elderly grandmother, who raised him, rescuing him, as it were, from an inner city slum kind of condition, taking him and, and raising him and giving him a sense of purpose and direction, which for him was athleticism and boxing. In the little vignette, he happens to use a, a, a slightly profane word, 
that we often might use to refer to someone's derriere. And his grandmother said, don't you use those words in front of me. (laughs) And I thought how sweet and wonderful that he was raised by, and they did nothing to make this elderly grandmother look glamorous or beautiful. I mean, it was just, it was unvarnished reality and truth about who she was and what he was, contrasted with what he was. And I thought, neither one of these men are postmodern. Because in the boxing ring, as much as Ewan McGregor had boasted and boasted and boasted in all the months leading up to this, that he was going to come out on top, that he was going to win this fight, that he was going to show himself to be the greatest, not only in the martial arts world, but in the world of boxing. In the final analysis, when that 10th round came, and more than 12 fists landed against his face. And he was left standing, technical knockout. No matter how much in his heart Ewan McGregor wanted the world to be Ewan McGregor on top, he went down defeated. You see, what we have to recognize is no one can live postmodernism. Because the hard fist of reality will stop you at some point in your life. And my final thought was two men, incredibly wealthy. But what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses and forfeits his soul? That's where our world is. A dark place where people are spending everything they can and losing and forfeiting their souls. And into that vacuum and emptiness, we have a sweet gospel that can rescue their lives. And that's what we're called to do. This is a great passage reminding us that it's not what burns within our heart, it's what God did in Christ for us. And we have the privilege of being ambassadors of that great message. Let's pray. Father, help us. Help us as Christians to be so anchored into your truth that when we see people around us having all sorts of crises and we recognize that the only truth they have is the truth living in their own hearts, that we have a message that is truly, truly good news for them. Teach us, Lord, how to be your instruments and ambassadors on behalf of your Son, Jesus. In his name, amen.